It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses, trees, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you've heard the show, hey, welcome aboard. If you've been here before, you, you, you kind of know the format. First, we start talking about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And that's very important in today's world. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about, you know, politics, history, religion. I guess we're really going to be talking about history and religion. We're going to be talking to Ed Wilkinson, retired editor of the Brooklyn Tablet. And we're going to be talking about his 30-plus years at the Tablet, actually 50 years at the Tablet, but 30 years as editor, and a book he has out, Chasing Church News. Um, meanwhile, you know, if, when we start the show, a lot of times we have one of the attorneys with us in the office. And today we have Daniela Campoli. Welcome again back to the Thank show. you for having me. Okay. So a uh, little bit about yourself. Where where did you grow up? Where do you live? Where did you go to law school? I grew up in Floral Park, which is on the border of Nassau County and Queens. And I now live in Howard Beach, Queens. I went to law school at Pace University School of Law. And I went to undergrad at St. John's University. Okay. And what's your family situation right now? So I'm married and I have a son who is 10 months old today. 10 months today. <laughs> yes, today. So it's he hard. is almost one. That's hard to keep track of time. Yes. It's easy because he was born on the 20th. So I can't forget that. Okay. Have you got his baptismal certificate yet? I have not. I'm still <laughs> working with the church to get that. All right, we have to see if we can get some connection, somebody to, <laughs> to check on that one. But we, we, we're talking before we went on about one of the problems sometimes that comes up. Can you just explain it briefly? Sure. So we have a question here from Maria from the Bronx. So her question is, she she recently transferred her property to her brother. Her brother has that property in his name right now. She has been going through a messy divorce. It has now been finalized. So she wants to know how she can protect her children so that she can ensure that this property goes to them when she is no longer here. So her question is, what estate planning does she have to do? Yeah. And as you know, um, a lot of people say, well, all I have to do is do a will saying where the, the property goes, but a will does not control assets that are in your brother's name. And and one of the problems, and we used to have this more, but I still think it's it still happens. You know, we, we used to have, and no offense, but we used to have the older Italian lady say, I put the house in my son's name, and he'll do the right thing. And then he dies, and then daughter-in-law says, thank you very much for the house, and goodbye, Grandma. 
I want to sell the house and you're being evicted. It still happens yes. to this day. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't just put, you know, property in somebody else's name. And I don't know if it would be any help at all if, if somebody were getting divorced, not to take it out of their name after the divorce has started. Yeah, you may want to do a will after the divorce has started, but you certainly don't want to take property out of your name. Well, I mean, I'm not saying don't put property out of your name, but I, I can't see the point that's, you know, anybody can check. If you transfer real estate in New York, anybody can get on the Internet and see every real estate transaction that involved your name for the last 60 years. I mean, it's just you can't hide real estate. And, of course, the, the, the problems would be, one, if you want to sell your house, I think most people know out there that if you sell your house, the first $250,000 capital gain is not taxed on the sale of your personal residence. And if the house has been out of your name for a couple of years, you get ordered by the IRS, the IRS will say, hey, you didn't own the house some of those years, the years it was in your brother's name. And you might get denied that exemption. Plus, if you pass away owning the house, your chil- the children or the heirs ordinarily would get what we call a stepped-up basis. In other words, let's say you, you paid $30,000 for a house 40 years ago and it's worth a million dollars today and your kids sell it for a million dollars today. If it's inherited, whether it's through a trust or a will, the children do not have to pay capital gains taxes. Capital gains taxes are wiped out by death. But at the same time, if the deed is in your brother's name, (laughs) you know, I don't know what happens depending on who's in your brother's family and what they're wanting to do. And, And this happens all the time. And some people don't realize it. People don't always die in the right order. You put the house in your brother's name. He's a lot younger. He's going to survive you. But maybe he doesn't. Plus, not only that, let's say the brother gets sick and he has to go to a nursing home. Maybe that nursing home is going to put a lien on your brother's assets, which would be your assets, because you put the the house in your brother's name. And, and of course, one of the things, too, would be if your brother transfers the house back to you and he goes to a nursing home, there's what we call a five-year look-back period in New York. And somebody could look at that and say, hey, you made a gift in the last five years. We're not going to give you nursing home Medicaid, even though you could argue and you could certainly go through a hearing and something. Well, it wasn't really a gift. It was kind of held in an informal trust, which sometimes we call a constructive trust. But it's not the right way to do it. You want to tell them what the right way is? So the right way would be to transfer that property into an irrevocable trust so that you start that five-year look-back period. So that property would be protected fully after five years from any nursing home potential liens. It also ensures that your heirs, your children, would avoid probate so that they do not need to go through probate to be able to sell that property after you're gone. All they need is a death certificate. They sell it the next day. They also get that step up in cost basis. So it is as of your date of death value, not as of the date, the value you purchased the property at, like Mr. Connors had said. So it's a lot of advantages to that irrevocable trust. Yeah. And not only that, the ownership is clear. If the assets from the trust, if you pass away, the house goes wherever you say it goes and you can change even an irrevocable trust in New York. And a lot of people don't realize this, but even an irrevocable trust in New York can be changed. You know, I say, well, how can you do that? It's irrevocable. Well, in New York, we're very fortunate that we're able to change irrevocable trust the law in New York as such. Now, don't take my advice and talk to somebody in Florida or New Jersey or something like that because the laws may be different. 
But in New York, you can change an irrevocable trust. The It's almost a fiction that it's irrevocable. The one thing we do need to do is to have another person as trustee. You can't sell or mortgage the property um, without somebody else being a trustee. And by the way, I, didn't, I don't think we talked about this when Frank Milley was on not that long ago. But if you want to talk to Frank Milley, he can give you a loan on an irrevocable trust. Because a lot of banks, for whatever reason, don't want to give loans on irrevocable trusts. I know the reason. Because the trustee might resign, the person may change the beneficiaries, and next thing you know, you don't know who really owns the property. But if you talk to Frank Mill, if you've got an irrevocable trust and you want to get a loan on it, and you can talk to Frank Melia. He's got a couple of commercials during this show. He can tell you how to do it. He, he'll see you if you, you, know, you live near one of our offices. He'll see you in one of the offices and explain to it. And it may cost a little bit more, but then at the same time, people do get mortgages. They take the property out of an irrevocable trust, and yeah, they can put it back. But the question would be, when they if they do go to the nursing home, you know, when does the five years start? Does it start on the first deed or the second deed? And that could be you. You, you could be waiting at the discretion of a uh, a hearing officer who may say, "Hey, you transferred the deed. It's a five year penalty." That's it. And I don't know if you would win on appeal. You know, you might have a shot if the hearing officer feels sorry for you at the first hearing. But I don't think you have a good shot on the appeal if he rules against you. And, you know, so this way, you know, let's, I've seen people, they take out a loan. They've got four years. They're one year from being protected from nursing home bills. There's a five-year look-back period for nursing home bills. They're, you know, a, a year or a few months, and they need a loan. And... The loan offices says, we'll take the house out of the trust, and then you can get a loan, and you can put it back in. Sometimes, in a lot of cases, the loan officer takes it out of the trust and doesn't put it back in. And that can cause a real problem, because everything we, de- we did all, all of a sudden becomes undone. And you got a million-dollar house that's subject to nursing home bills, subject to probate. And, you know, probate right now in New York City is a problem. It's still backlogged. There's some of the horror stories that we faced a couple of years ago have been corrected to some extent, but it's still not good to go through probate. It takes a lot longer to sell the house than it used to. You could have a house, leaving it to you know, two children equally, they can get along and it still might take six months to be able to sell the house because you got to go through court first. And that doesn't take into the circumstances where maybe somebody's not going to, one of the children is not getting part of the house. They can test, or let's say you got 10 nephews and nieces, and nine nephews and nieces consent to the will. The 10th one doesn't. It could literally take years and years to sell that house. And it happens more than you might think, because some people think, well, you know, I, I have an, a, a nephew. I haven't seen him in 20 years. He's not my will. He can't stall everything else. But if it goes through probate, everybody who's your next of kin by law has a right to see the will and has a right to contest it. And, you know, I, I, I hear this all the time. Oh, my nephew, he's not going to contest my will. He's not going to contest my will. And then next thing you know, person dies and the nephew contests the will. Because why not? There could be money in it for him. Um, I mean, how many times, Danielle, have you seen that happen? Too many times. Yeah. And, you know, you, when, when we're trying to put a plan together, we're trying to put a plan 
you know, that covers everything. We don't want to pay taxes. We want to lower estate taxes. We don't want to pay capital gains taxes. You know, some people, sometimes they read an article and it tells you how to lower, you know, the estate taxes, but then you incur, you lower the estate taxes by $300,000 and then you raise the capital gains taxes by $500,000 and you haven't really accomplished an awful lot. The plan should try to pay the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. And, you know, sometimes too people put, you know, properties in what we call tenants in common and create two probates on the same property. And they have children, maybe they're not naming in their will because some financial planner has said, well, you know, which is true, you know, two $6 million estates pay zero taxes, where one $12 million state in New York pays like a million two hundred thousand in taxes. So they separate the estates on the deed, and that's fine. Yeah, you you saved a million dollars in, you know, estate taxes, but it, it, you could have done it by doing a trust, and we could have gotten the same amount of money out tax-free, but we're paying for two probates, and if one of the children doesn't contest that contest the will, those two probates may cost who knows how much in money. You know, easily could cost a few hundred thousand dollars on each probate. So what we're trying to do with Connors and so and we're trying to do a plan that minimizes the taxes and it's combination of estate and capital gains. We don't want to save three hundred thousand dollars in estate taxes and incur four hundred thousand dollars in capital gain. Yeah, every once in a while when you're one of those borderline you know, cases here and there. You got to go through the computer and see which one is better. And I, I just want to throw it out there in New York. You know, you read an article once in a while. You read an article that says there's no estate tax under almost $13 million as far as the federal government is concerned. So you say to yourself, I don't have to worry about taxes. I only got about $7 million. Now, let's say $7 million and you're single. Right now in New York, like $650,000 on a $7 million estate gets taxed. You have a seven million dollar estate, six point five million. There's no tax. Seven million dollars, if that comes up, has a tax of over six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And you might say, how, "How? Wait a minute! How can that happen?" Um, you know, I got. Wait a minute. Six point five million is tax free. Seven million incurs six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in taxes. How does that happen? How can I pay more? than what the exemption is. And I know it sounds stupid. It sounds crazy. But if you read the tax laws, that's what it says. And if you're close, if you got over $6 million worth of assets, you need to do some tax planning because your children really could get hit hard. There there are different ways to try to get you under $6.5 million. $6.5 million or less, there's no tax in New York State. Federally, it's $12,900,000. And our goal is to try to get you out of that number. There are a lot of things we can do. If you own an insurance policy, we can give it to a truly irrevocable trust. And that policy, if you live three years, is not taxable to your estate. And then your children have the money from the insurance policy to pay for taxes, expenses, if something comes out, but it goes out completely tax-free. And I know some of you have to say, wait a minute, did he say insurance is taxable? Yeah, if you have more than a $7 million estate and you're single in New York, you have, your insurance policy is taxable to your state. If you're under $6.5 no, it's not taxable to your state. But a lot of people, they 
creep up there. You know, they got a 401k that's worth a couple of million dollars. They have an investment property they inherited from their parents is worth a couple of million dollars. They have a house worth a million dollars. They got some money in IRAs and, and other retirement plans. And they add it all up and they don't think they have $7 million, but they do. And again, that's something that just happens, you know, more than you'd like to, you know, like to say. And yeah, if you have more money, you pay taxes. And I know some people feel that way. But at the same time, with a little bit of planning, if somebody has a $7 million estate, I'm sure we can save your children $650,000 in taxes. And if you don't have close to $7 million, well, what you want to do, you want to save your assets from a nursing home. Because the average cost of a nursing home right now in Brooklyn, Queens, is about sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars $17,000 a month. Every single month for the rest of your life, your children or who's ever managing your affairs may have to pay like sixteen, seventeen thousand $17,000 a month. And that's a sin. So if you want to give us a call, give us a call. And, and Daniela, um, we are talking about this last week, last show, but we've got a lot of languages covered in our office but what language do you speak besides english i speak italian okay that comes with its own challenges but yes with all the dialects it does have its own challenges but i can get through it yeah and i mean people people come to our office what they want to do they probably they want to make it easy for their children and that's our job to try to make it easy for their children and hopefully the children pay the least amount of taxes we need to be let pay legally Sometimes you got assets, you may have to pay taxes, but we don't want to pay taxes. We want to avoid it if we can. And if you want to, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be talking to Ed Wilkinson at the tablet. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, tax, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. 
call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now, we're very happy to have Ed Wilkinson, who was editor of the tablet for how many years? 33. 33 (laughs) years, okay. And he has a book out, Chasing Church News. And Ed, what's the book about? I mean, it's a picture book, but... And, and why did you do it? And what's the history of it? Mm-hmm. Well, the book is actually a, a snapshot of what it means to be a Catholic over the last 50 years. I actually worked for the tablet for 50 years, 33 of which were uh, I was the editor. But uh, over that time, I was collecting some photos at the tablet. You know, you're just not a reporter. You're a reporter. You're a photographer. You're a layout man. You did everything. So I had been taking these photos and... Uh, Every once in a while, I'd get one that I really liked, and I'd put it in a folder, I'd frame it and put it on my wall, and and I was collecting all these. So as as my 50 years was coming to an end, I said, um, people would say to me, why don't you write a book? And I said, I don't think I need to write a book. I said, I've got a book here in in photos, and uh, I put together all of these photos that I had. I went back and went through all my old negatives and, you know, looked at all these things and finally came up with... There's one or two pictures from every year that I worked, all 50 years, so starting back in 1970 all the way up to 2020, right up to the pandemic, uh, retired right in the middle of the pandemic. So that's what the book is. It's a snapshot of Catholic life over the last 50 years. Now, the tablet, I mean, let's step back a second because not everybody's from Brooklyn and Queens. <laughs> yes. What is the tablet? The tablet is the official newspaper of the Diocese of Brooklyn. It was founded in 1908, so it's over 100 years old. And uh, it basically tells the uh, 
uh, tells the news from a Catholic perspective uh, to the people here in Brooklyn and Queens, carries a lot of uh, local stories about uh, Catholics here in Brooklyn and Queens. And at the same time, it keeps everybody in touch with the national news and international news. We have lots of the, on the Pope. Uh, it's a it's a newspaper. It's a real newspaper. You know, we've always tried to tell both sides of the story. It's not just uh, um, it, it's not just a public relations uh, paper from the diocese. It's a real newspaper that gets into into controversy, and it's been that way. It's got a good reputation for uh, for being a newspaper. As a matter of fact, right now. The tablet is one of the uh, it's the only Catholic newspaper in New York City. Uh, uh, Not to whatever happened to Catholic New York. Catholic New York, uh, the cardinal decided it was uh, it had run its course and he decided to simply use social media. And uh, and that was the end of it. He just uh, in November, they closed. And uh, the same thing happened out in Rockville Center on Long Island a couple of years ago. Again, they decided to go social media to close the newspaper. Personally, I think it was very short-sighted. Uh, I think newspapers uh, still have a place in uh, in media, and uh, we're happy to be, you know, the only Catholic newspaper here in New York City. And I think it's because it was built on a strong foundation. It's always been a good newspaper, and uh, at one time it was more of a national newspaper, but now it's it, it's a diocesan newspaper. But we're proud of it, and uh, I hope that'll go for many, many, many more years. Now, of course, diocesan. A lot of people, again, may not understand or whatever, but Brooklyn, Queens is a different diocese than, let's say, New York City, the rest of New York right, City. Right. Absolutely. Uh, people get that confused all the time. You know, uh, they'll say, oh, uh, yeah, I belong to the church. You know, the, the cardinal, Cardinal Dolan, he's he's our bishop. And I have to say to him, no, you live in Brooklyn. It's a totally different entity. Brooklyn and Queens is its own diocese. It's got its own bishop, and uh, it's got its own governance, runs its own schools, you know. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there's a little problems when you're trying to get benefactors, and you want them to help Catholic schools, and they say, oh, yeah, I gave to the Cardinal's Appeal. And we say, well, most of New Yorkers live in Brooklyn and Queens, and our schools are run by the Brooklyn Diocese. So if you give to the Cardinal, that's that's over on, on the other side of the river. We need some help here on this side of the river in Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah, well, the same things happen to us like with Catholic charities. Mm. A lot of people, they you know, don't know the difference. And, uh, yeah, there's the Catholic charities of New York, but there's also Catholic charities of Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah. And it's not the same. <clears throat> it's not the same order. Uh, that's right. We have our own bishop, Bishop Brennan who would be the equivalent of Cardinal Dolan in the Archdiocese. We have our own cathedral, St. James Cathedral, downtown Brooklyn. Most Catholics don't even know where that is, but uh, it's there. It's a historic church, the first church on all of Long Island. But that's the cathedral church of the Diocese of Brooklyn. Now, what year did... Do you know what year was it founded, St. James? Uh, St. James, well, the diocese was founded in 1853. Mm-hmm. But as there a parish. out here before, yeah. Yeah, the parish is about uh, 1822, I think it was. And uh, it was the first Catholic settlement on all of Long Island. The people who lived in downtown Brooklyn used to have to go across the East River uh, to Mass at one of the churches, uh, St. Peter's on St. Peter's Street. was there, yeah. 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 So that's where they would go. And they, they, they banded together and. Uh, they had a petition. They went to the cardinal. Uh, I think it was uh, I think it was Cardinal Hughes at the time. I'm not quite sure, but they petitioned him for their own uh, parish, and uh, and he said uh, he said yes. He gave them permission, and that was really the beginnings of the Catholic Church here on Long Island. 
Yeah. Well, St. Patrick's, what was that? That was pretty early, too, though. Yeah. That, that was oh, a couple that, yeah. years later then, right? Not yeah, much. yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, St. Patrick's of Brooklyn. I'm sorry. Oh, St. Patrick's in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, that was that was one of the first uh, parishes. But mm-hmm. St. James is the oldest established parish in in Brooklyn and Queens. And at one time, you know, the Brooklyn diocese extended all the way across Long Island. So it, it was Nassau County and Suffolk County, and and then 1957, Rome decided to make that a separate entity, and that became the diocese of Rockville Center. All right. Well, getting back to your book, chasing. Mm-hmm church news we got pictures there for each one of the 50 years that you work for the tablet that's right what mm-hmm. what are your particular favorites of that uh-huh well people keep asking me that and i i say you know every picture is kind of a favorite it's got a story behind it but there are a couple that i single out uh, it was back in no uh, it's it was in the early 70s i took a picture of uh, a little boy drinking water from uh, a hydrant in uh, in williamsburg that's when Williamsburg wasn't such a chic neighborhood like it is today. And it was it was really considered inner city. And I was working down there in a the youth center, and I just happened to get this great shot of this kid drinking water out of the hydrant one day. And that's one of the pictures that I uh, I framed and, and, and kept, you know, all these years. That was back in the 70s. That's one of my favorites. Also got a great shot of Mother Teresa when she was... Uh, here speaking at a convention for the Knights of Columbus in 1992. I got a a beautiful picture of her uh, sitting at the banquet table just I couldn't believe how small this woman was in stature. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you, you know, when you meet her and, and you look at her, you see this little lady and, and all these people around the world listening to her. You know, she, she says something and they jump. And uh, so I was, but I got a nice picture of her. That's one of my favorites. So, uh, and then the following day, I got a picture of. Um, Bishop Daly at the time was our bishop, and he was hosting the convention, and President George Bush was campaigning. And uh, I had a great vantage point right underneath the rostrum, and I got a nice picture of uh, the, of Bush and uh, Daly together. So those are some of my favorites. Okay. Now, what what again, somebody said write a book, and you decided to take all your pictures and put it together. So how long did it take you to do this? Well, you know, people ask me, how long did it take you to do this book? And... Uh, the quick answer, you know, the wise guy answer is that it took me 50 years to write it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, really, you know, uh, I, I worked on it, I think, for the better part of two or three years. And one of the reasons was a lot of the early pictures were black and white negatives, and they were in storage, and we weren't quite sure where they were. So I had to go on this uh, treasure hunt looking for the uh, the negatives, and when I finally found them in a warehouse over in New Jersey. Uh, it was like, you know, we, we had moved it several times, and finally they said to us, you can't take all your archives with you everywhere you go. So they put them in storage, and, and, and I had no idea where they were. But I finally tracked them down, and I, there they were. It was like a treasure trove of uh, all of these negatives. So I, I went back, and I looked through all of those negatives to pick out my favorite pictures. And uh, so that was, that was up to 2000. We did black and white photos only. And then in 2000, we started doing digital photography, so that was a little bit easier. I had them all stored on my desktop, so um, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun putting it together, you know. And I had retired as editor, actually, in 2018. I stepped down as editor, and I worked for two more years. And the, the, most of the, that time, during that time, was really working on this book. Now, how many bishops have you worked for? <laughs> I worked for three bishops. 
Bishop McGavaro. He, uh, uh, he, I was hired during his tenure. And then Bishop Tom Daly came in, and then Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio. Uh, so I worked closely with those three bishops. And uh, actually, in the Catholic press, that's, uh, that's pretty good if you survive three bishops. Usually, <laughs> usually when a new bishop comes in, he has his own ideas of what to do. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, one of the victims usually is the, uh, the editor of the Catholic newspaper. He goes <laughs> and the bishop puts his own man in there. But I survived three bishops and it uh, wasn't always easy. There were, uh, there were times when I got called on the carpet and... Uh, but uh, and then I, you know, we, it was right at the end uh, when Bishop Brennan he was he came in recently, and I technically was not I never worked for him, but I have interviewed him. So I say to him, you know, I say this is great. This is four bishops now. <laughs> and, and, and and you know, obviously, anybody who who becomes a bishop has a strong personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. so um, what what would would you say the differences in some of their management styles? Not we don't want to get any secrets. Well, every one was different. Uh, you know, every one of those bishops are, are unique, and uh, certainly Bishop McGavaro was a much beloved bishop. He worked with Catholic charities, and uh, he knew everybody's name, uh, first name basis. I think everybody worked in the diocese. He knew them, and uh, you couldn't have met a nicer man than Bishop McGavaro. Uh, so. You know, we were, we loved him, and when he retired, we said, "Oh my goodness, what are we going to do now?" And uh, and then Bishop Daly came in, and he was a big, tough-looking guy when he first came. You know, and he came in, it was like his new sheriff in town, and we all said, "Oh my God, where'd they get this guy from?" You know, and it turned out after he got used to us, or we got used to him, and he was one of the most uh, wonderful men you ever want to know. And uh, he was really, uh, he was really a pleasure to work with. Just a good old Irish guy who would sit around and talk with you forever and ever. And then Bishop uh, DiMaggio came in two thousand and three, and again we said, "Oh my God, this is going to be." <laughs> he he had a little bit more of a um, uh, a gruff personality, and, uh, but once you get to know him and you you crack that shell, you find out what a really soft-hearted guy Bishop DiMarzio is. But uh, So he was, uh, he was a little tough in the beginning, and then when he finally realized that we weren't out to get him, that we were really, <laughs> we were really friends and working with him and for him, uh, we had a great relationship toward the end. And even on, on the, uh, on the uh, TV show, we had, we had uh, Currents News, and I would interview Bishop DiMarzio every week, so I really got to know him very well. And... Uh, it was just, um, it, it's been a privilege to work for those three bishops. You know, each one is so different, and uh, but it, it was a pleasure, and, you know, I was glad I had that experience of working for them. What was the most controversial event that you were involved in with the paper? Where was it, well, you know, involved where, where maybe there was controversy among the faithful? Yeah, you know, when, when, uh, when I took over the paper in 1985, um, it was coming out of a period of, really being known as a very liberal newspaper. And uh, and so what I was told, asked to do by the board of directors was to try to steer the paper into more of a middle course, you know, uh, not to be so controversial on some of these topics. Uh, and I think I was able to do that and win back a lot of uh, readers. But uh, <clears throat> I think the most controversial thing I was involved in was we had a columnist, Father Richard McBrien, who was a very liberal theologian, and uh, 
he was a nice guy. I, I liked Father McBrien, but he wrote some controversial stuff, and, and Bishop Daly did not like him. <laughs> he did not like this guy, and he told me one time, he said, I'm going to get rid of this guy. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get rid of him. So I said, oh, boy, this is going to be a problem. Uh, so actually, I was on my honeymoon, and I came back from my honeymoon, and I found out that Bishop Daly had fired Father McBride. That was the end of that. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, I went away for three weeks, and this is what happened. So, so I think we lost about 100 subscribers at the time, and uh, I was inundated with uh, literally hundreds of letters complaining about why did we get rid of uh, Father McBride. So I think that was probably the most controversial thing that we uh, you know, had to fight off there. What what was he writing about that was controversial he, back then? He, I remember his column, but I, I don't really remember it. He was kind of negative about the Holy Father, and that uh -huh. was it. You know, he would uh, he would go after Pope John Paul II and uh, some of the teachings, and you know, say there was another side of the story than what the Pope is telling you, and and that got him in a lot of trouble. I mean, he was great for the paper because it generated a lot of letters. You know, I get a right, lot right, of letters right. complaining Sometimes about. Sometimes controversy is good for oh, a newspaper. Absolutely. Obviously, for a newspaper, you want controversy, and you. You want to get those letters, and he generated a lot of letters for us. But, um, you know, he just, I guess he just kept it up, kept it up, and Bishop Daly. Had, and it, it, we weren't the only uh, papers that had a problem with him. A lot, of, a lot of papers across the country were dropping his column uh, because of his content. So it wasn't something that Bishop Daly had personally against them. It's just that, you know, they weren't going to put up with his dissent from church teaching anymore. All right. Well, <laughs> what are you gonna, You know, you have to know who the boss is when you're when you're, when you're putting these things out and trying to put out a newspaper. Like, I'm. All, I was always very cognizant that it was not my newspaper. The the bishop. Uh, this is really the Dyson newspaper. The bishop owns the paper. He has all the stock in the paper. So, uh, you know, you, you're only fooling yourself if you're going to try to go up against him. Who's the editor right now? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I hope you have an answer. <laughs> it's it's kind of um, it's kind of a um, they they have a, a number of editors and uh, it, it's run totally different than when I was there. You know now it's it's part of the sales media and they have a, a much larger staff and uh, you know they they have they have a lot of different editors and then they have a news director. So uh, they all work together, and I guess they come to a consensus. But uh, it's not. I always, I always tell people. I shouldn't say this, but I, I always tell people they have about five people doing what I used to do by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's just uh, that's just me. And, uh, you know, it's so when they people say who is the editor, I'm not quite sure because every section seems to have his own editor. Now, how many popes have you met? I've only met one pope, but uh, I've been in the presence of uh, three, Benedict the uh, 16th and, uh, and Pope Francis. I was lucky enough to be the official photographer at Kennedy Airport when, when he arrived in the diocese in uh, uh, 20, whatever, 2015, I think it was. And so I was lucky enough to be walking right alongside him. As a matter of fact, it's the front uh, page of my book where I'm running along, chasing the uh, Pope across the tarmac at uh, JFK Airport. So that's how we got the name Chasing Church News. Uh, so, But uh, Bened Pope Benedict, I actually... I uh, took a photograph of him, and I was up close with him when he was a cardinal, Cardinal Ratzinger. He came to New York to give a lecture over in the city, and I said, uh, I'm going to go over to hear this guy. I said, this guy 
has a reputation for being controversial. And uh, I went over and I was just so surprised at how soft-spoken he was. I said, this is the guy that everybody is so afraid of that they call the inquisitor. He's just a a meek, mild, soft-spoken guy. And I was able to take a picture of him with Cardinal O'Connor and a couple of other people. Little did I know that a few years later he would be the pope. Yeah, I think it's great mystery who becomes the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you talk about you don't know who's going to be president two years from now, but I don't think anybody knows who the next Pope's going to be. No, I, it was a big surprise, I think, when uh, Cardinal uh, Bergoglio, who, Pope Francis, when he took over, I, nobody had his name on the list, you know. And actually, they should have uh, they should have had him on the list because he had been really the second in contention when Benedict was uh, elected. Bergoglio was really right behind him, they say, in the votes. So it shouldn't have been a big surprise, but because of his age, a lot of people just had dismissed him at the time. Now, you know, the the, the book is also a little bit of history. You can, you know, you go back and you see pictures of people, you know, back from 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's That's one of the things I really like about, you know, I really felt like we were putting together a historical cap, a time capsule here. And uh, I've talked with some young priests since the book came out, and and they would totally did not know about some of these things that were in here. You know, they said, "Gee, I never heard of that before. I never heard of that event before." And what event? Give uh, me an example. Well, <clears throat> there was a a pastor back in the seventies, Father Adam Weber, who was celebrating his fiftieth anniversary one night, and. Uh, I went out to take pictures of him, and I took a photo of him, and then he went up and started the Mass, and he, he dropped that right there on the altar. Dropped that on the altar. And uh, it was, I mean, I was I was a fairly young reporter at the time, and it just kind of shook me up, you know, to see this guy die right in front of you. But uh, I have a picture, uh, probably the last picture ever taken of him in the book, and uh, so young, a couple of young priests said to me, I never heard of this guy, Father Weber. You know, I, I never knew that he somebody died on the altar like that. And I said, well, yeah, there it was. It happened. And uh, so things like that that a lot of people aren't aware of, you know. And it's like second nature to me. I think everybody knows about this. but uh, Right, right. Yeah. So it, it was fun putting it. But it is a, a historical time capsule because there are pictures here of Bishop McGavro uh, with Mayor Koch, and there were pictures of uh, Mayor Giuliani uh, marching down Fifth Avenue here in Bay Ridge when he was the Grand Marshal of the parade here. Uh, so there, there were a lot of different photos that it's really like a, a historical time capsule. And I like to say it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot of 50 years of Catholic life here in Brooklyn and Queens. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are enjoying it as uh, uh, the the feedback that I've been getting has been uh, that they really enjoy it and they like the photos and, and they remember when they'll come back to me and say, like that picture of Father Weber, some lady came to me the other day and she said, you know, she said, I had to come back and tell you this, that my son was the altar boy at that mass that oh, day. Wow, that... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is certain degrees of uh, separation, you know. It's, uh, so so where, where do we get this book? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Uh, right Give me now, an answer, though. <laughs> uh, right, I have a, I have an answer to it. Right now, it's it's available. It's being used as a premium for a tablet membership drive, so that we're trying to raise some money to keep going uh, as a Catholic newspaper, and this is being used as a premium for certain uh, donation levels. You can also get it that uh, we we we're on a book tour and we're visiting parishes on Sundays. 
And uh, we also, you could pick it up uh, as a single copy uh, edition right there at that. The tablet is not selling single copies right now on its website. It will be eventually, I think. So you'd have to come to one of the uh, book signings that we've been having in the parishes to get one. And eventually it'll go on sale through the tablet. So you just watch for uh, advertisements in the tablet and you can get it. Okay. One one last question. Yeah. What if if you took all the, the the events that are depicted in the pictures or whatever, what is the most important in your mind and most memorable? Well, I think the overall impression that I get when I look at it as a, as a totality is how the diocese has changed. You know, there are especially like the diversity of the ethnic groups in the diocese. Uh, The book opens, the opening picture is a a group of Hispanic men walking in a holy name rally back in Williamsburg in the the early 70s. And it ends with uh, with covid, with a woman that's got a mask on sitting in church all by herself. You know, the isolation of, of the 2020 when when really people were told they couldn't come to church anymore. But in between, there are so many pictures of different ethnic groups, uh, uh, you know, the Irish from the Irish Fair and Chinese from uh, some of the uh, from the um, uh, ethnic celebrations that we had in the diocese. So when you look at it, I think you're getting a good overall picture of what Brooklyn and Queens is, a very diverse place and uh, a place that has changed a lot in the last 50 years. Well, Brooklyn's always been changing. Always been changing. This is the Diocese of Immigrants. and right. uh, So I think we've documented that in this book. And uh, I think that's important that we not forget our history, that we document the history. And that's one of the things the tablet has done over the years. It really has documented the history of, of living here in Brooklyn and Queens. All right. The name of the book, Chasing Church News. Not that easy to say. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. <laughs> right. <laughs> the author, photographer, Ed Wilkinson, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help, too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. 
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And if you're you're glancing through the the book by Ed Wilkinson or whatever, Beth thought that there was one picture of Jimmy Carter that was interesting. And why did you find it interesting, Beth? Well, it is photojournalism because um, this is taken by the tablet nominating Jimmy Carter. And it's at the Democratic Convention, and it has Jimmy Carter with a long beard and long hair, and J.C. can save America. And um, it it's humorous, but, you know, th- that's what was going on. Everybody thought, well, Jimmy Carter could save America, and some of us, when he became president, you know, God bless him, I just think he made a mess of it. But um, sometimes you have to look, well, what did he do post-presidency? And, um, you know, he was a rough campaigner, so he says some stuff that you might think, oh, my goodness, what's he doing here? Is this race baiting? What the heck is this? But he got into the Habitat for Humanity, and he worked, and, you know, he stayed with the church locally, and... Never, never got, never put on airs. And as my friend put it, didn't go and write tons of books and, you know, make millions of dollars. Just stayed, stayed who he was, Uh, a Georgia peanut farmer, I guess you might say. But um, maybe we can disagree with people wholeheartedly. But when the time comes, he's trying to be a good man. You know, maybe maybe that's all we can ask of, of any of ourselves. You know, try to be good. Do the best you can. So son, if you want to teach Sunday school and if you want to help build houses for people that are less fortunate, oh, I think that's a good thing, even if, even if he did drive a whole lot of us crazy as president. Now, one of the problems I remember... An interview we did way back when with uh, Secretary of the Treasury under Carter, Michael Blumenthal, and uh, he he mentioned one time they were having an important cabinet meeting, and the White House sprinkler system went out, and Jimmy Carter left the meeting to start working on fixing the sprinkler system, which was one of the problems of the Carter presidency. Yeah, he had an engineering degree from Annapolis. He was a better engineer than the White House engineer. And he could fix the sprinkler system, but really was with the best delegation of time and resources to have the president of the United States fix the sprinkler system while a cabinet meeting was put on hold. And he said that was an example of of the Carter presidency. 
He was the smartest guy in the room, but he wasn't able to effectively delegate, which then there used to be uh, ads or questions, articles. Is the presidency too big for one man? And, of course, a few years later, Ronald Reagan becomes president, and he knew how to delegate. He didn't think he was the smartest guy in the room, but he was able to delegate, and he delegated to smart people who carried out his policies. And our country, of course, was much better off for it. And I don't think there are too many people right now who don't regard the Reagan presidency as a great success. Some of us conservatives may think of it more success than other people, but I think even a lot of moderate Democrats and a lot of even moderately liberal Democrats concede the fact that the Reagan presidency was, you know, one of the greatest presidencies of the the 20th century. And he was not stupid. Go back, please, if you have the chance on YouTube or however, to look up some of his interviews with Johnny Carson or anybody. He was brilliant and um, smart man, but just hit things head on. And I think that was the difference. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure how President Carter thought, um, but Maybe he maybe he worked on things that were too small and didn't understand the big picture. Ronald Reagan, for me, understood a big picture. Like you said about the Soviets, we win, they lose. That's our foreign policy. We're running out of time. See you next week in the same time, stations, places. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. You can always give us a call at Connors and Sullivan. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.